Today's guest is Natalie Poulard. Natalie holds a master's degree in genetic counseling from the University of North Carolina at Greensboro and is a master of art in psychology from Brandeis University. As a genetic counselor, Natalie works with individuals with a personal and or family history of cancer to provide genetic risk assessments and identification of hereditary cancer syndromes, coordinates genetic testing, and educates the patients regarding future cancer risk and medical management options. In addition to her work at UT Health San Antonio MD Anderson Cancer Center, Natalie is currently working with Gracias, Texas, Genetic Risk Assessment for Cancer in All South Texas, a program to identify at-risk individuals in our area, free of charge. This project is made possible by funding from the Cancer Prevention and Research Institute of Texas. Thank you, Natalie, so much for coming in today. I I have to tell you in the spirit of honesty, Natalie and I actually have never met. When I had so many clients expressing an interest in genetic counseling, I actually found her on LinkedIn, which, by the way, is exactly what LinkedIn should be used for. And she graciously (laughs) responded. We had a nice, long, hour-long conversation, and she agreed to come and be my guest. So I have so many people who are intrigued with genetic counselors. They've never heard of it. They are very curious about what they do. And so thank you, Natalie, for coming in and being on the podcast and sharing your experience. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm very happy to be here. Well, I'm curious, how in the world did you even get into this field? So please share a little bit about your story and how that came about. Sure. Um, And so I have somewhat of a unique um, experience getting into genetic counseling. Um, It was certainly not the most straightforward path um, when I compare um, my path to others that that I've met. Um, My undergraduate degree is in psychology and gender studies. Um, I had not heard of genetic counseling when I was an undergraduate or when I was in high school for sure. Um. The way that I discovered genetic counseling was actually after I graduated with my undergraduate degree, I I decided that I wanted to go to graduate school for psychology. Um, I was, you know, an undergraduate in psychology and I I didn't know what I wanted to do when I graduated. Um, And so I... um, I got a job right after graduating in in sort of the corporate world and decided I didn't like it. So I was going to go back to grad school and and try and be a psychologist. Um, And so after getting my uh, master's in psychology, um, I kind of expected that I was going to continue with that track and and get a degree in clinical psychology and be a psychologist. Um, What I didn't realize was that the job of a psychologist is not exactly the way it's portrayed on TV. Um, and so there's a lot of, a lot of background. There's a lot of research, um, that's involved that those were not the things that I was most passionate mm. about. I, I wanted to, to be in a medical setting and I wanted to be counseling patients. Um, and that is certainly involved in clinical psychology, but a lot of clinical psychologists don't do very much of that. So I started to look around and started to wanted to, try and see what other career options were out there for me. Um, And I landed on three. um, And the way that I landed on those three was I went to the career office at Brandeis University. And the the woman that I met was shuffling through some papers. And when I came in, she said, oh, 
Have you ever heard of genetic counseling? I just found out that we have a program and it's the most fascinating thing. It sounds like what you're describing. <laughs> and um, I had never heard of genetic counseling. Um, I She started, you know, talking to me about it and I said, well, that sounds perfect. What do I have to do? And she said, well, have you taken your, your science classes? And I said, no. When I was an undergraduate, I didn't think that I would need biology or chemistry, um, lab sciences, so I didn't take them. Mm. So I got very discouraged. I was like, well, I guess this isn't the career for me then because I, I, you know, I have a graduate degree now. I don't necessarily want to go back and do those undergraduate mm -hmm. courses. But I, I came back to Texas and I started thinking more about it. I thought about school counseling. I thought about um, marriage and family therapy. And I couldn't get genetic counseling out of my head. So I contacted a local genetic counselor in Austin. Um, and she graciously allowed me to come and, and shadow her. I had about a week before I was starting a new a new job in the corporate world. Still not what I wanted to do, really. Um, and uh, she let me come shadow her. And I thought, this is this is perfect. This is exactly what I want to do. Um, and so that's when I um, started taking those prerequisite courses. I kind of decided I was going to take it one at a time. As it was going well, that's when I decided I was going to just continue and, and apply to genetic counseling school. How old were you? Do you mind if I ask at um, this point? I know that I got into genetic counseling school when I was about 26. Mm -hmm. Good. <laughs> so, well, And the reason I ask that is because so many young adults think, okay, I have to have it all planned out. Oh. And I, I like that philosophy, but I do believe it's unrealistic. And you mentioned a couple things. The power of career centers. Mm -hmm. They are so underutilized. And Absolutely. I love that you were searching and went to them to ask questions. And there you go, your dream career. I think it's so, that's why it's so important to work with a career development specialist, because we live in this world of knowing about so many things that others have no concept of. The other thing that I like is that sometimes we think, okay, I'm here in this specific field and to go back and take more courses, it's not worth it. Mm -hmm. But the journey is long. And I love that you said I couldn't get it out of my head. And and going back and taking those courses has put you where you were meant to be all along. And so not to get distracted or discouraged that, oh, my gosh, I have to have more education that I wasn't thinking about. It's a value mm -hmm. in career development. We talk about that as a value. But it ultimately helped you to get to your perfect career path. Exactly. And I, I had thought of myself as someone who wasn't necessarily good at math. And so mm -hmm. I, that's why I thought, well, chemistry and biology are going to be really hard because of those lab portions. Uh, but, you know, it, it took me enrolling in those courses and, and figuring out that I no I, I can do this. Mm -hmm. um, and I just took it one class at a time. And I said, you know what, if if it ends up that I, I can't take all of these prereqs for some reason, then I guess it wasn't meant to be. And, and it worked out. Um, I was able to, I was able to do fairly well in all of those classes enough to, to get that GPA that I needed to get into graduate school. That's great. That's great. And I think maturity gives you the gift of being curious mm -hmm. as young adults. Sometimes we don't know why we're taking classes or how it relates to anything meaningful. And so I always feel like, Going back to school, and I talk about this with my adults because half of my clients are actually adults. Mm -hmm. You're going to love school so much more now than you probably did when you were younger. Sure. So if you're curious and you want to be a specialist at what you're doing. Obviously, when you're in your master's program, that's when you are specializing. 
So tell me, tell me what a day in the life looks like for you. Sure. Um, so in I'm a clinical genetic counselor, which means I work directly um, counseling patients. And so um, on a, a clinic day for me, looks like I have um, my personal schedule is that I usually see about two patients in the morning, uh, sometimes two in the afternoon. Um, and those sessions can last anywhere from 30 minutes if if it's a fairly quick family history and, and it doesn't take very long to an hour and a half if that patient has um, a, a detailed family history and, and asks a lot of questions. Um, so each of those sessions is is um, between that length, 30 minutes to an hour and a half. Um, and in between those sessions, what I'm usually doing is is documenting, starting the documentation for that. Um, sometimes I'm calling out um, results that I've gotten from previous patients. But the the clinic days where I see patients are, are my most fun days because those are the days I, I get to to talk to people, um, learn their stories, and and educate them on on in my field cancer. Mm-hmm. So clients take tests. To determine if they're predisposed correctly. And so tell me about the delivering of that information. First of all, why are they testing? Mm -hmm. And two, the delivery of the results. So what I do as a genetic counselor is I um, meet a patient who has been sent to me for a number of different reasons. Um, Sometimes they're referred by their doctor. Sometimes they've just been diagnosed with breast cancer and their doctor's done a preliminary family history, found out a couple relatives have a history of of other types of cancer, maybe breast cancer, maybe colon cancer, maybe some other types of cancer that are a little suspicious for a genetic condition. And so they've sent them to me to take a very detailed family history. I take three generations. Mm. I ask about everyone's ages. I ask about cousins. I ask about, um, you know, children um, and all of their um, diagnoses in terms of for, for me specifically, I ask about their cancer diagnoses. Um, so it's it, sometimes that can take a very long time, especially in, in South Texas um, with with our big families here. Mm. Um Based on that risk assessment that I'm able to do with that family history, I can then um, tell based on national guidelines whether they qualify to do genetic testing. And then we we talk about whether that is an option that they're interested in. Most of my patients who've, who've been sent there certainly by a physician um, – are, are interested just because their their doctor has recommended that testing for for one of um, a number of reasons. Maybe it's so they can make a surgical decision about um, about their breast cancer, or um, you know whether that that uh, testing can tell us something about the treatment that they should pursue. Um, and so we have that conversation about the reasons their doctor wants them to do this testing and whether that's a good option for them. Um, and then, um, based on that, we order the genetic test. The test is done with either a blood draw or saliva sample. It usually takes about two to four weeks for that result to come back to me. And then I'll call them with that result. Um, and so um, most cancer is not hereditary, so a lot of my results are negative. Give that uh, information to the physician and the patient, and then they, they are usually on their way at that point. If they're positive, um, if they do have a hereditary cancer condition, though, that can change things for them. That might change whether they do a more extensive surgery. But also the thing that that usually is the most um, impactful in terms of the family is that other family members can also have that genetic condition. So for hereditary cancer, a number of conditions are what we call autosomal dominant, which means that about 50% of the individuals in that family are um, likely to have that specific genetic change. 
And so then we can offer that testing uh, to family members. And, and uh, it's a process of discussing that with the patient themselves and then encouraging them to tell their family members about it and then getting those family members to be also be interested enough to come in and, and have that test done. So tell me about the counseling piece, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think one reason why some of my clients are really drawn to this career field when they learn more about it is that it is the science mm-hmm. and the counseling. So people who are drawn to the investigative career fields, uh, they're very curious. How does that work? Why does it work? Along with people who care about the social side, not being social, sure. but helping. Obviously, that counseling piece is, is a really important part of that. Sure. Um, and it definitely is. It's definitely um, a duality between um, educating um, and the science, as well as being very, very mindful of the patient's emotional state. You know, a lot of my patients have just been diagnosed with cancer. When you're just recently diagnosed with cancer, you are caught up in a whirlwind of doctor's appointments, uh, more doctor's appointments than you can even imagine. And so, it's a matter of checking in with that patient. And then for me to come in and tell them, by the way, you also don't just have cancer, you have a hereditary cancer condition. It can sometimes be very, very overwhelming. So that is uh, part of the, the counseling piece is checking in with the patient, making sure that we are doing what's emotionally best for the patient, as well as, um, you know, obviously we want them to get the best treatment that's available to them. And that's why we're usually offering this test. Some patients don't come with that um, with that experience. Some patients are just coming from the outside. They know that they have a family history and they self-refer to me because of their family history and they want to know. So they're very curious, um, very information seeking. Uh, and so the, the counseling and the emotional aspect to that patient is going to be very different from one of our patients who is currently going through cancer. Usually for that patient, it's more of talking about how are family dynamics? Is this going to open up a can of worms in your family? Have you considered and have you asked other family members, would they want this information? Um, And really just asking a lot of probing questions to make sure that this is really something that they're ready Mm -hmm. to do. Right. And I know one thing that invariably when this career comes up within my clients and we're talking about what it is, the very first thing they say is, I don't know ethically or morally if I could, what they believe it is, let's say is a a mother is predisposed, she's pregnant and they test the baby and there's something wrong with the baby. This is kind of how they go about the conversation. Mm -hmm. And then being a part of an individual making a decision about that pregnancy. And and I've had people say, I I could not do that. Mm -hmm. So kind of walk through what that actually means within your world. I know you deal more with cancer, but Mm -hmm. the ethical and the moral conversation is still relevant. Absolutely. Um, So when you go to graduate school for genetic counseling, um, you you're educated more generally. So you're educated to perform counseling, not only for one specific type of field, but they want you to have experience in all types of genetic counseling. So we're educated not only in cancer, but also in, um, prenatal counseling, the one that you mentioned, as well as laboratory and uh, pediatric is, is, of course, the one of the more common ones as well. And, and yes, one of the hallmarks of genetic counseling is um, not what we call non-directiveness, which means that your goal when you go into any genetic counseling session is to meet that patient where they are, um, to learn about their experience, and then to be able to give them information that is going to help them make the best decision for themselves. 
And yes, a lot of a lot of people do find it very challenging in the prenatal realm, especially because those are very, very difficult and personal decisions. And so certainly if if you know you're the type of person who um, who wouldn't be able to do that, who wouldn't be able to go objectively into that session, then it may not be the best fit. And especially you can also think about prenatal might not be the best fit. So if you, you know, one of the benefits of doing that in genetic counseling school is that you are able to kind of have that experience and see where your strengths lie. So there are a number of counselors who who think that they would be very, very good and, and are welcoming that experience in the prenatal realm and they have a, a poor experience in their clinic and then they decide maybe I, I want to do laboratory instead where I'm not interacting with, with the patients. I'm more interacting with the physicians um, to where I'm telling the physicians what is the best test um, for this particular patient rather than counseling that patient on what they themselves should do. So within the field, there are lots of options. Um, but yes, ethically, um, ethically, there are some sticky um, issues around genetic testing that we're either that we're just learning about in that um that can be hard for some people. Right. One thing that is interesting is the growth of genetic counseling, um, how fast it's growing. So it's actually growing. The Department of Labor says 6.5 is a healthy growth for careers, and it's actually growing at 27%. It's one reason why I'm doing this podcast is to shine the light on careers that are in high demand. And it's interesting, salary-wise, Often people come and say, okay, well, counseling fields don't make much money. Mm -hmm. There's a little bit of difference, actually, for this one. The salaries are higher. So within the United States, genetic counselors on average across the entire U.S. start at 52. Their average is about 80, and their high is 170 or 107. In Texas, again, we are so blessed. We have an incredibly strong economy. They start out around 68. 95 is the average, and 122 is the high. We have currently 200 jobs that are on Indeed that are needing to be filled right now. And within the United States, it's close to 4,000. So tell me a little bit about where people go to school, what you know as far as the universities that specialize in this, just to give our listeners a, a little bit of an idea of how prevalent and, and known are those universities. Sure. Um, so, yes, the, the demand for genetic counselors is growing very much, much faster than than uh, we currently can fill that demand for. Um so there are currently about 50 accredited or accredited new programs in North America. Um, there's four in Canada and uh, the rest are in, in the United States. Um, and, and they're at all kinds of, of, uh, universities and colleges. So the, the two in Texas, I can tell you are at Baylor, um, and at UT Health, um, both located in Houston. And I know that there is, there's great interest in, in starting programs in, in other cities as well. So, so yes, so there are programs all over the country. Um, like I, I was in Texas when I was applying and I decided to go to a program in, in North Carolina because I, um, I, as part of the genetic counseling uh, program application process, there are interviews. So you apply, there's an interview process, and then there's a match system that matches you um, based on how you as well as how the program ranks 
ranks your interview. And so a lot of a lot of students do end up, you know, a little bit farther away from home. We're trying to open more programs so that um, so that people can uh, stay more local if that's what they would like to do. Tell me where you feel like the industry is going. And the reason I ask that is there's a great book called The Fourth Industrial Revolution mm-hmm. that talks about top career fields that are going to occur over the next 10, 20 years and genetics in general, right? We're able to identify mm-hmm. more and more and more genes. And what does that mean? Absolutely. So um, so genetics is starting to touch basically every aspect of medicine. Personalized medicine is um, hopefully, hopefully the wave of the future. So it used to be that genetics was really only for in the pediatric and prenatal settings, right? That um, a child was born, they had um, either a birth defect or, or some sort of um, intellectual disability. And so the doctors knew that they should do a genetic test. Nowadays, that knowledge about genetics is starting to to seep into pretty much every aspect of medicine, cancer, um, neurological conditions, heart conditions, um, all in, in endocrine conditions. Um, and so that is partial, part of the reason that the demand for genetic counselors has grown exponentially is that our knowledge of genetics is growing much faster than than the medical professionals in, can keep up with, mm-hmm. um, and so part of what our job is is to keep abreast of that of that new knowledge, that new research, and how we can use it, whether it's useful in the clinical setting, um, and even especially with um, direct to consumer testing becoming more and more common, mm-hmm. um, people are learning things about their genetics that you know that they themselves need someone to help um, analyze and and filter that information. And so genetic counselors have started to um, be available to um, companies like 23andMe to help them make sure that that information that they, they, they give that they're giving their customers is accurate and that it's um, information that they can, that they can use. Tell me what you think is the most challenging part of your job. So the most frustrating aspects are, of course, that genetic testing is still expensive and it's still expensive for a a lot of patients. And that means that a lot of patients who would benefit or are interested in genetic counseling or genetic testing sometimes end up choosing not to do that testing because it's cost prohibitive. Um, working with insurance companies, um, is, is definitely a a frustrating part of, of the field. Um, and that does cross, um, you know, that crosses into all of the realms of clinical counseling. But, um, I know that again, because genetic testing is starting to touch all aspects of medicine, the insurance companies are always the slowest, right? To, uh, to uptake that information and to apply it. Um, as part of that, um, not all not all genetic counselors in the United States currently are licensed. We are not licensed in Texas. Um, about half of the states um, right now have licensure, and half of them don't. And so, it is um, it is one of our biggest challenges right now is to advocate for ourselves to be licensed as medical professionals nationally, um, and that um, that would help our being able to be reimbursed and help genetic testing um, continue to be able to be reimbursed. I would guess that it's your continuing education is significant. 
Yeah, we do. We do uh, do lots of continuing education because things are changing at such a rapid at such a rapid pace. Um, the National Society of Genetic Counselors helps us with that by offering webinars. They have their national conference. Um, we can attend other medical conferences to get those continuing medical credits as well. We have to recertify every five years at this point. Um, and so when we are uh, brand new genetic counselors, we pass a board exam that gets our certification. Um, and then after that certification, we have five years to attain, I, be- I want to say it's 12 um, credits um, that we have to get. And then we recertify. Basically just says that we've kept abreast right. of the, all of the new information. Right. Yes. And so what do you, what would you say is the most rewarding part of your job? So just working with, with families and, and hearing, um, hearing them say that our, that our counseling has been useful and that, um, that they are grateful for what we have, have done, um, it's very rewarding to hear people's stories and be able to um, give them information to help them understand maybe why something happened. Um, and most patients are, are are very grateful. So a lot of people believe that, you know, giving someone bad news, giving someone a positive genetic test result um, would be would be devastating. And, and occasionally it is um, in the cancer realm, though. Patients are often very, very appreciative of knowing that information and having someone there to explain what that information means for them. Um, and so that is, is extremely rewarding is to work with these families and to help them get other family members tested, help them become their own patient advocates, basically. Yeah, that's beautiful. One thing I have my clients do, and I talk about this in every podcast, is informational interviews and job shadowing. That's one reason why I'm doing the podcast, so it's a resource for them. Um, As we were speaking earlier, you told me that you actually take interns in job shadows. We do. We do. We um, at UT Health, we allow students to come and shadow our genetic counseling, genetic counselors. Um, There is, you know, there is paperwork to fill out. There are background checks um, so that you are able to do that. But it is probably the most valuable thing you can do if you are interested in this field um, to be able to shadow a genetic counselor and to see what those sessions look like and then what we actually do on a day-to-day basis. Um, It was the deal breaker or not breaker, but it is the thing that allowed deal maker maker for me Mm -hmm. that allowed me to see what, what that, what this career was um, and, and really, really motivated me to continue with my education so that I could be a genetic counselor. That's great. That's phenomenal. So tell me, I always like to end on three words of wisdom. Um, and I love your story because it wasn't a straight shot to where you were going. You were floundering a little bit. You asked for help and you found something. Obviously, our listeners are going to be able to tell you're passionate about. Mm-hmm. So what kind of, of words of insight or wisdom would you share with our listeners? So the the three pieces of advice that that I would have are. One, if you can shadow in whatever career that you are interested in, um, definitely try and do that. Whether it's interviewing, like you're offering these inter- informational interviews, whether it's interviewing someone who does your job, if you're not able to directly shadow them, just find out as much about the day-to-day life in that career as you can. Um, 
flexibility for me, keeping an open mind and not selling yourself short. Mm. Um, if I had, d- had gone with my first instinct, I wouldn't have been a genetic counselor because I, you know, I already had one graduate degree. I didn't want to go back and take undergraduate courses for the prerequisites, but I did. I kept an open mind. I thought, well, let me take it one step at a time. And that's how I was able to, to ultimately end up in something that I actually do enjoy doing on a day-to-day basis. And then the third piece of advice would be just to be honest with yourself about your strengths and your weaknesses mm-hmm. and, and, and what you would like to do. Um, part of what motivated me to continue with that education was, was knowing that, no, this is, this is something that I know that I would be good at. And part of the reason that I knew I would be good at it is because I had past experience as a, um, an advocate for domestic violence, mm. um, survivors. And I knew that that counseling aspect, that crisis counseling, um, could be used within the field of, of genetic counseling. And I, I knew that it was a career that, that I could do. Um, and that was a very, very strong motivator for me when I was doing those, those science classes, um, that I was pursuing something that I knew that I could be passionate about. Mm. Right. And I think that's what everybody ultimately wants. And it's funny because I always say to my clients, you know, if you talk about the counseling field in general, if you ask a counselor who is specializes in grief, they've had a story of grief that Mm -hmm. has put them there. You know, if you ask somebody who, you know, is a marriage and family therapist, They've had a story that's put them there. That's why they're so great. And it's the difference between sympathy and empathy. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think oftentimes we don't think about what has been our experiences and what what drives our passion because of those experiences. So I really thank you so much. I know you have some contact information and some resources. Would you like to share that with the listeners? Sure. Um, So if... Any of your students are interested in contacting me directly. My email address is my last name, Poulard, P-O-U-L-L-A-R-D, at utesca.edu, U-T-H-S-C-S-A dot E-D-U. Um, for those interested in um, or looking into becoming a genetic counselor, there's a website called becomeageneticcounselor.org that has a lot of good information. Um, if you are... Um, Across the country and wanting to shadow a genetic counselor, you can go to findageneticcounselor.com and that will let you put in your local information um, and to find genetic counselors who are um, willing to accept student contact um, for shadowing. And then finally, there is a toolkit at mygenecouncil.com that um, has a lot of information about what a genetic counselor is and um, can also uh, direct you to the genetic counseling programs and more information. Well, thank you so much for being here. I I truly, sincerely appreciate you responding to my LinkedIn uh, message. I think it's such an important field and you're rare. So I appreciate you coming in, sharing your story, sharing where the the, the background that you have. And I know it's going to be incredibly beneficial to the listeners. So if people have questions and, and want additional information, um, you can contact me at readerconsulting.com, R-E-E-D-E-R consulting.com. I'm happy to make connections in whatever way I can. And um, that's it for today. So thank you so much and hope everyone proceeds with confidence. Thank you for listening to What's Your Career Story. 
If you'd like early access to episodes, you can join us at whatsyourcareerstory.com. If you'd like to learn about career paths, sign up for our monthly newsletter, which is also available at whatsyourcareerstory.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.